Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, uh, my name is Eugene Ho. I'm a partner in the business law group uh, in the Boston office of Verrill. I want to thank everyone for joining us and, and welcome everyone uh, to this BBA webinar on the Corporate Transparency Act, which uh, goes into effect in just a few short weeks. Um, so before we begin, I want to briefly introduce each of our esteemed panelists, uh, then quickly run through today's agenda. So as I mentioned, my name is Eugene Ho. I'm a partner in the um, at Barrel, where I co-chair the business law group there. I have a diverse transactional practice. I spend about uh, most half my time on M&A and other significant uh, transactions, and then the other half on uh, what I call uh, general corporate counseling. The vast majority of my clients are, are privately held businesses, so many of my clients will be directly impacted by the CTA. Joining me today is uh, Dan Blanchard. Uh, Dan's a partner at Morse, where he chairs the firm's corporate group. Uh, core part of Dan's practice is uh, assisting startups and emerging companies, many of which are VC-backed focusing primarily on uh, the technology and life sciences industries. Also joining me is Nick Niles. Nick is a partner in the Government and Internal Investigations Group uh, in the Chicago office of Kirkland & Ellis. Nick represents and counsels clients on government enforcement actions, internal investigations, uh, cross-border transactional and compliance matters with a focus on anti-corruption, sanctions, anti-money laundering, and related international risks. And last but not least, Joe Bognese. Joe is a partner uh, in the Washington, D.C. office of uh, the firm Latham & Watkins, where he advises clients in connection with domestic and cross-border investigations, white-collar criminal and civil enforcement matters, and related litigation. So thank you, Dan, Nick, Joe, for taking time out of your busy schedules to be part of today's program. Uh, so now I'll quickly run through today's agenda. I'm going to start off... Um, sort of with a brief overview of the CTA uh, and its reporting and requirements and, and just try to set the stage. Uh, then Dan uh, will talk a little bit about how the CTA is gonna impact um, startups and emerging companies in particular. Um, Nick will then focus on private funds and, and their portfolio investments. And then Joe will discuss some of the particularities around uh, public companies and, and sovereign wealth funds and financial institutions. And then after that, uh, all, all four of us will um, will shift gears a bit and all come together to have a discussion about some of the challenges and concerns uh, facing law firms that represent clients that will be impacted by the CTA. Um, and then if we have time at the end, uh, hopefully we will, we'll take some questions. So with that, let's get started. I'll, I'll share my screen here. You guys see my screen? Perfect. So um, what's the Corporate Transparency Act? So the Corporate Transparency Act was enacted in 2021 as part of the Anti-Money Laundering uh, Act of 2020. Um, even though it, it was enacted several years ago, it's uh, largely gone unnoticed, uh, or or let me put it this way, it's, it's people haven't focused on it really until this year and in particular uh, the last few months. Um, I think a large part of that is because many people, uh, myself included, expected the, the federal government to delay the implementation of the act, 
given sort of all the open questions and and how much uh, you know Finson has to do to prepare here. But uh, obviously that hasn't happened, uh, and the new law is going to go into effect January 1, 2024. Uh, in the name of combating money laundering, tax fraud, uh, and other financial crimes, the new rules impose sweeping ownership reporting requirements on most domestic and foreign entities registered in the U.S. Um, as many of you know, you know, foreign entities in the U.S. can currently be done on a largely anonymous basis, particularly you know, LLCs. Um, that'll no longer be the case with the CTA, uh, and I'll get into shortly sort of what specifically the report requirements will be and who they'll apply to. But it's estimated to affect over 32 million pre-existing entities in the first year and sort of 5 million new entities in 2024 and each year uh, thereafter. Not exactly sure how FinCEN calculated those numbers, but um, clearly it's going to have a big impact either way. Uh, and the CTA is administered and enforced by FinCEN, which is short for Financial Crimes uh, Enforcement Network, which is a bureau of the U.S. Department of Treasury. So the, uh, ba the basic outline of the new CT re uh, reporting requirements is as follows. Each reporting company has to file a uh, beneficial information report or BOI report electronically with FinCEN uh, on or before a certain deadline. Uh, the report has to contain identifying information about the reporting company and each of its covered individuals, uh, emphasis on individuals. And the reporting company has to uh, promptly update its BOI report whenever necessary to keep the information current and accurate. So I'm going to unpack these, this, um, this outline by answering these six questions. What is the deadline for filing a BOI report? You know, what's a reporting company? Uh, what's not? You know, who are the covered individuals? What data does FinCEN require of each individual? Um, and then what, when must information be reported, sorry, updated or corrected? And what are the penalties for non-compliance. So what's the deadline? So all reporting companies that are already in existence or, or registered uh, before the end of the year have until January, 20, January 1st, 2025 to file their first uh, BOI report. So basically, existing companies have a, a full year before they need to register. However, new entities um, that are filed you know, on or after January 1st, 2024, are going to have 90, they have to file their first reports within 90 days of formation or registration. Uh, note that the rule actually says 30 days, but earlier this month, I believe, FinCEN extended the deadline to 90 days in the first year, basically just to, to give uh, folks a little more time as we tr transition into these new requirements. But going forward in 2025 and, and beyond, uh, basically you're going to have 30 days uh, after you make a make a filing formation filing or a registration filing to file your BOI report. So what's a reporting company? Or who's a reporting company and who's not? Basically, unless an exemption applies, uh, all entities formed or registered uh, in the U.S. by the filing of a document with a secretary of state or similar office will be a reporting company. Um, and the law base lists 23 uh, specific categories of of regulated or larger entities that will be exempt. Uh, listed some of them here, banks, other, uh, other regulated financial institutions, SEC reported public companies, so-called large operating companies, 
uh, you those with greater than 20 full-time uh, U.S. employees and, and greater than five millions of uh, sales in a prior tax year, tax-exempt entities, government entities, and then wholly-owned subsidiaries of, of exempt entities. These are some of the 20 examples of some of the 23 categories. Um, and to be clear, if, if an entity is not formed by virtue of a state filing, um, like trusts or, or general partnerships, those are excluded from the reporting requirements. So who are the covered uh, individuals of a reporting company? Um, so reporting companies covered individuals, i.e. those individuals uh, for which the reporting company has to file information fall into two categories. First category are their, are their beneficial owners um, defined as uh, any individual who directly or indirectly exercises substantial control. Uh, and then, you know, the rule defines what that means, uh, which I've laid out here. Any senior officer, uh, anyone that has authority to appoint or remove the officer uh, or a majority of the directors. And then there's kind of these vague categories of an important decision maker and, and anyone else uh, who has substantial control. And then any individual who owns directly or indirectly 25% or more of the equity or, or the vote um, is considered a beneficial owner. And note that there's no limit uh, to how many beneficial owners a reporting company can have. The other category of covered individuals are the company applicants. Um, and that's defined as the person who, individual, who files the, the formation filing uh, and the individual who directs basically the uh, or controls the filing action. Um, and a reporting company is required to, to uh, indicate up to two company applicants. Uh, and note that this is only applicable to new companies. Uh, existing entities uh, will not have to register or report their company applicants. So what data does uh, FinCEN require for each covered individual? Um, again, these are the beneficial owners and the company applicants. They're going to require a full legal name, date of birth, current residential address, um, an ID number uh, from a government-issued ID document, and then a digital, digital image of that document. So obviously, very personal information uh, and could be a challenge collecting uh, from your beneficial owners uh, and company applicants. And when must reported data be updated or corrected? Within 30 days of discovery. So uh, unlike annual reports with, with state filings where um, you know, there's an annual requirement, <clears throat> after a reporting company files its initial BOI report, there's no ongoing annual requirement. However, if any of the information within the report changes, i.e., you know, a change in a senior officer, uh, a change in someone's address, um, someone's passport expires, the reporting company is, is then required to make an amendment within 30 days. Obviously, a very, uh, very burdensome requirement. So what are the penalties for noncompliance? Uh, they can be potentially significant. So willful failures. So willful is, is, is you know, operative here, but willful failures may result in civil or criminal penalties, uh, including civil penalties of up to $500 for each day the violation continues. So if you do the math, you know, that can rack up pretty quickly. Uh, or criminal penalties, including imprisonment for up to two years and or a fine of up to $10,000.
Um, so let me stop sharing my screen now. Um, so I know I went over that pretty quickly, um, but hopefully that that gives some context as to what we're talking about today. Uh, and next, I'll, I'll turn it over to Dan, who's going to talk a little bit about how the CTA is going to impact a um, big part of his client base, which are startups and, and merchant companies. So thank you, Eugene. So I'm just going to start by talking a little bit about um, who we are at Morse and the types of clients we represent. Um, aside from our M&A practice, we represent a lot of smaller companies and um, you know emerging growth companies and venture capital funds investing in those companies. So I'm going to stop for a moment and sort of rehash some of what Eugene has already gone through, but with a specific eye towards speaking to entities and, and VC funds that invest in this space. So I'm going to share my screen right now. Here. So this chart here, and I would suggest anyone who's a legal practitioner in the space to take some time to go to the FinCEN Small Business Report Compliance Guide. It is extremely, extremely helpful. And, and this chart comes from it. And from that from the charts that they provide and sort of the, the input that FinCEN has promulgated, you can get a sense for, for who's going to be caught under the reporting requirements. And you're also, as legal practitioners, going to get a sense for um, how broad some of the requirements in reporting are. So with respect to VC-backed companies, it's going to be incredibly important to understand who a beneficial owner is. So a beneficial owner is an individual and this is individuals, not necessarily corporate entities, who directly or indirectly through any contract arrangement, understanding relationship or otherwise, exercises substantial control or owns or controls not less than 25% of the ownership interests of the entity. The easier prong here is the owns or controls not less than 25%. I think most of us will be able to sort of sit down with our clients and figure out what that is. I just want to note that ownership interest is extremely broad. So it can also include convertible instruments, um, safes, what have you. So, you know, the, the analysis will be a little bit more complex in that regard, but substantial control is extremely broadly defined. And this is this chart here is from the FinCEN Small Business Reporting Compliance Guide. And I just want to stop for a moment to, to talk about who, who's going to need to file reports. So we frequently have startup companies, they come to us and they look for guidance for, you know, incorporating and then doing their first few rounds of financing. In these instances, each of the senior officers in those companies at the time of incorporator, they have some they have substantial control. Um, if you think about some customary venture capital transactions, you know, it, it is very, very likely that with any VC transaction, there'll be protective provisions and negative control rights that are heavily negotiated at the time of the transaction. Some of those, depending on the scope of them and how aggressive and what the terms are, could make individuals at the funds technically have substantial control. Um, what we are talking about internally at the firm is whether this um, CTA compliance guide, whether it's going to lead to a situation where certain individuals or funds are entering into passivity commitments tangential to their um, investments, similar to what you'll sometimes see in CFIUS transactions or, or companies that or funds that are affiliated with bank holding companies 
that will on occasion enter into passivity commitments. So the we're getting further down here into the important decision makers. You know, these are any individual who directs, determines, or has substantial influence over important decisions made by the reporting company, including decisions regarding, you know, business, finances, structure, extremely, extremely broad. Um, there, there's a chance that certain individuals, and it was meant to be broad, um, certain individuals who, who are working at the company could fall under this. And then finally, there's a catch-all for, you know, other individuals who um, controls exercised in new and unique ways that can still be substantial. For example, fundable corporate structures, flexible corporate structures may have different indicators of control than indicators included here. This is meant to be extremely broad and um, to catch a lot of folks or anyone that may be exercising control over a company. Um, and it's just important to do the analysis and, and be careful and educate our clients. So that's really all I have, Eugene. Sounds great. Thanks, Dan. No, I, I, I yeah, those, those two categories at the end there are, are so big. It's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how, how people, different people interpret that. So Nick, if you could enlighten us with, um, with, um, you know, talking a little bit about private funds and their portfolio investments and how the CTA may impact. That'd be great. Yeah, happy to do it. Thanks. So uh, just, I guess, as a preamble, so that we're all thinking about the same type of client base here, uh, when we talk about private funds, you know, interchangeably, we also talk about private equity. So we're, we're really picturing in our minds here, affiliated groups of entities that are an investment manager, a general partner, which is managing a fund, right, which has pooled uh, capital from a number of passive limited partners um, who may technically own that fund, but are effectively are not actually exercising decision making for the fund. And then, of course, there will be other structuring vehicles, which we'll talk about in a minute. And those private funds are then making a number of investments, whether they're buying equity interests in operating companies, or maybe they have a strategy like what Dan is describing, where they're making some smaller um, pref equity or minority investments or they're buying real estate, whatever it is, they're deploying their capital in ways that could potentially um, bring in more reporting companies to their sort of universe. So that's what, we're, that's what we're thinking about when we talk about private equity. There are, I'll start by highlighting sort of two um, specific challenges that I think this industry faces in complying with the CTA. Talk about a couple of the exemptions of the 23 that Eugene listed, um, which we found to be in our conversations with clients um, of the most help potentially to private equity. And then I'll I'll close by sort of commenting on how some of the different pieces of a, of a typical private equity structure, um, how they've typically sort of shaken out when we apply those exemptions. So in terms of unique challenges, um, probably more than most industries, um, private equity sponsors have a lot of entities. They're forming um, funds, of course, GPs, but they're also forming parallel funds. Um, AIVs, they've got special offshore feeders for foreign investors or for investors for certain tax considerations. Uh, and they love to layer below the fund itself, they love to layer sort of holding companies and aggregators where they've got um, additional minority investors coming into their investments. And the consequence of all that is that even a very small fund may have dozens. And as you get into the sort of medium and large size funds, you're talking about hundreds and potentially thousands of separate legal entities, each of which technically has to be evaluated for CTA compliance purposes because each is a separate U.S. domiciled entity. 
and we can make some broad statements about exemptions that should apply to most of those entities, but but really they each technically need to be considered separately. So that's that's burdensome. Um, and I think that's fairly unique to this industry. The second, um, the second challenge that a lot of our clients in this industry face is that um, you've heard a lot about control so far uh, and the importance of understanding control, both for determining if exemptions apply uh, and also if you decide that you have a filer and have to figure out who is being reported, what control persons are being reported. And control in private equity is not just about um, share ownership, the way it might be in a corporation or, or member ownership in an LLC. Um, but there are also very complex instruments, whether it's a limited partnership agreement or the investment management agreement or some other means by which a person may exercise control. So there's a, a little bit more to un, unpack and, and sort of untangle there. Um, so those are the, the challenges that the industry faces. I will say, um, notwithstanding the difficulty of applying some of these concepts, there are a handful of those 23 exemptions that Eugene referenced earlier, which are of particular relevance to this industry. Um, first and foremost is the idea that a registered investment advisor is exempt from CTA reporting. And that picks up, the, of course, the management company within a private equity uh, complex, but it also picks up under the SEC's definitions of what is a deemed investment advisor, a lot of the general partner vehicles that are formed to manage uh, either specific funds or even specific investments themselves. Um, that SEC definition is incorporated into the CTA. Um, there's also a separate exemption for pooled investment vehicles. These are, of course, the actual investment funds themselves, where third-party capital is aggregated. Uh, as I mentioned before, those third-party funds are going to technically be owned by the investors, but they're purely passive. And to the extent that those fund vehicles are reported on the investment manager's form ADV, um, they're known to the SEC and, of course, to anybody else who wants to take the time to Google them. And so on that basis, those will also be exempt from CTA. Um, and then finally, uh, a handful of the largest sponsors will actually have um, public management companies or, or are owned by public companies. And so there may be some uh, some relief there for the very largest sponsors. The um, the so-called subsidiary exemption, which we again talked about on one of the prior slides, um, is also of some relevance here where you've got indirect control of a portfolio company or a holding company by an exempt investment advisor. So uh, so that applying that logic has been uh, a key part of our client conversations as well. So after highlighting those handful of exemptions, let me just talk about at least how I think of private equity structures and how some of these exemptions have typically applied. This obviously is a generic comment and every, every client's um, situation will be different. But if you think about kind of the middle tier of entities within a private equity complex, you've got the funds, the general partners, and the investment uh, advisor, which is SEC registered. We've generally found that that kind of middle tranche of entities um, will be exempt using a combination of the exemptions I mentioned, the pooled investment vehicle exemption, the registered investment advisor exemption, and the notion that GPs are deemed to be registered, even if they haven't separately filed with the SEC. And a lot of those exemptions will pick up your kind of offshore feeders and your parallel funds and your AIVs and the other things that um, uh, investment funds practitioners form um, for specific investments. The So that's kind of the middle tier. The upper tier, you potentially have um, entities that will be reporters. So here, um, it's been our general experience that 
founders of PE firms who have either personal vehicles for wealth management purposes or otherwise have formed vehicles to um, receive carried interest from their funds and or exercise governance over those funds. A lot of those vehicles are not actually included in the SEC registration of the advisor itself. And so we're finding it a little more challenging um, to identify helpful exemptions. And so it's more likely, not a sure thing, but more likely that those vehicles will need to be reported and there will be conversations about the sensitive personal information um, that Eugene and, and Dan just highlighted. And then finally, the, at least by volume, uh, kind of largest piece of this uh, three-layer cake, if you will, is the below the fund entities. So these are all the portfolio companies, whether they're actually operating companies that have employees and, and customers and contracts, um, or the holding companies and the aggregators that sort of sit below the investment fund and above the operating companies. And a lot of these, if it can be said that the sponsor is the sole, again, through its GP's control of the fund, um, if it can be said that the sponsor is the sole controller of these entities, then there, there's a, a good argument that they will be exempt on that basis. Um, but we we don't always take 100% equity ownership interest of these below the fund vehicles. And so you do have to contend with questions about whether um, a third party also could be said to control that entity. And then it raises questions about, well, can you aggregate exemptions that are applicable to two sponsors that participate? In an investment together. Um, what happens if you have a sovereign wealth fund or an institutional investor, which has a, a sort of material ownership interest in the company? What if they are passive? Um, so these are these are the kind of fact-specific questions that we're having to grapple with. Um, but I would say, again, depending on the strategy of the sponsor, if they're taking control positions, there is at least a good, a good argument that a lot of the holding companies and aggregators will be exempt. So those are the those are the unique challenges in, in sort of asset management. And I think where, where we've generally come out in, in a series of client conversations. So we'll leave it there for now and, uh, and pass back to Eugene. Thanks, Nick. Joe, do you want to uh, give us some thoughts on, on, on sort of how the CTA may impact, you know, public companies and um, sovereign wealth funds and, and financial institutions? Absolutely. Um, and again, thank you all for having me. Uh, building on the things that we've talked about so far, uh, there are a couple of additional categories of, of clients or entities that I think are worth thinking about with respect to what sort of CTA exposure they may have. The, the first of those, and, and I'll take up sovereign wealth funds first because it sort of dovetails off some of the things that Nick just mentioned. Um, so a sovereign wealth fund, is, as you all may be aware or you may have dealt with previously, is sort of an investment fund or a private equity fund that its basis uh, comes from some governmental authority. So for instance, the sovereign wealth fund of, an, of a nation like Saudi Arabia, for instance. Um, in those particular instances, the sovereign wealth fund itself is not an exempt entity. Uh, it's not, you know, it, it, under U.S. law, it may not be U.S. registered and it may not need to itself report anything uh, under the CTA. However, the vehicles that it creates, for instance, the investment vehicles that are registered Delaware Corps, um, those, those vehicles themselves may be subject to the CTA and may need to file information about their beneficial owners if an exemption is not present. That creates um, and potentially creates a, a series of potential issues for sovereign wealth funds that are unique. Um, given the nature of their ownership and control. So if, if, if an entity within the sovereign wealth fund chain needs to report information, 
um, to FinCEN about its beneficial owners, it becomes a fact-dependent inquiry to figure out who, in fact, uh, is the ultimate owner of that sovereign wealth fund, who controls that sovereign wealth fund. And that can trigger um, sensitivity regarding the type of information about beneficial owners that has to be reported. For instance, you know, an image of an individual's passport. Um, it, it triggers or touches upon potential issues of sovereign immunity um, and, and national security and related issues. And at the same time, it also raises some good and, and interesting factual questions about um, what it means to own or control a sovereign wealth fund. How is it created? What are the instruments that give it its authority and how is it governed? So we wanted to flag that. Um, it is a niche issue, but uh, because of the unique challenges, I think it's worth calling out as slightly different than the rest of the, the private funds practice. The second category, and, and I know you at the beginning, Eugenia did a great job of highlighting a large operating company and um, public companies. So companies that file reports with the SEC uh, are, are exempt themselves from the CTA reporting requirements. Using the subsidiary exemption, any entity within the public company's chain that is wholly owned or controlled by that public company is also going to be able to, to utilize the, the parent company's exemption. However, um, that doesn't mean on its face that there is no analysis to be done for public company clients uh, or large uh, multinational clients. One is uh, the subsidiary exemption does not go upstream. So to the extent that a public company is not the ultimate parent, you will still have to evaluate whether it's ultimate parent entity, if it's a reporting company, um, is subject to the CTA. In addition to that, the subsidiary exemption, as other folks on, on our engagement here have talked about, does apply to wholly owned and controlled subsidiaries. It does not mean every majority owned or every subsidiary of a public company is necessarily exempt. So uh, even for public company clients, it's important to take a look, a close look at the organizational structure to understand whether there are any uh, majority investments where other owners might uh, conceivably exercise control, or if they engage in any joint ventures or other investments where they are a partial owner and there are other uh, beneficial owners potentially afoot that could knock out the subsidiary exception. Uh, taking a giant step back, that's a long way of saying just because you're dealing with a public company client does not mean that there's no CTA uh, analysis to be done or there aren't potential filings that might be required. Like all other entities, and I think this goes for private funds as well, in addition to um, complying with the CTA, it's also important to think about downstream entities and ultimately what they will be reporting about you. So if you uh, represent a client that's somewhere up in the chain, you have to also take note of the fact that moving forward, entities over which you perhaps don't have complete control might be filing reports and providing information to FinCEN. Um, so it's important to have a, a strong communication strategy and to understand uh, where all of those tentacles are in, in the chain. The last item I wanted to talk about briefly uh, sort of unusual for an AML law to be talking about financial institutions last, but uh, on its face, the CTA does not require reporting for financial institutions like banks and credit unions. They themselves are, in fact, exempt from the CTA. Um, however, that doesn't mean that the CTA will be completely uh, non-relevant to those entities. In the, in the months and potentially years to come, FinCEN has signaled that they anticipate passing additional rules 
The first will be regarding access to the information that's ultimately provided to FinCEN. And the second uh, will be an update to customer due diligence uh, rules regarding financial institutions. So at this point, we just wanted to, to put a marker down that financial institutions may in, in the future find themselves um, either wanting to or having to leverage information that's ultimately provided to FinCEN under the CTA. So that is sort of a, a TBD with respect to um, what role and, and what relevance this is going to have for financial institutions. I think the answer is going to be it will be relevant to them at some point, um, even if they're not going to be reporting uh, information about their entities today. Um, so I'll pass it back to you, Eugene, to get the Q&A started. That's great. Um, thanks, Joe. So you know, we've talked a lot today about how the, the legal requirements, about the legal requirements under the CTA and how they'll impact, um, you know, our clients. I'd like to shift gears a little bit here um, and talk about, you know, some of the challenges and, and concerns facing law firms, um, you know, who represent clients that'll be impacted. Um, you know, obviously, you know, lawyers are going uh, gonna to be asked by their clients and many of us, have, you know, are, are being asked this on a daily basis, sort of what this whole CTA thing is, you know, what are our obligations under it? So, I, you know, I'd like to ask the panel, um, do you think, you know, just starting off here, do you think this is a, the, the CTA is a, sort of an opportunity or, or is it a burden to law firms? I don't know what you guys think about that. I, I'll jump in on that, Eugene. I'll, sure. I'll say I'll I'll take it and say that in some ways I'm going to go and say it's a, it's a burden. It, it's it's compliance work that I don't think a lot of our client base necessarily wants to. I understand the un, I understand the public policy reasons behind it, so we're glad to assist. We're glad to help, but um, I I don't think it's going to be a profit center for 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 law firms. That's my take on it. The one thing I would say is it's going to require a lot of coordination. And I'm going to synthesize here a little bit from what Nick and what Joe said. Um, I think there's going to be some cross law firm coordination that's going to happen with respect to certain certain portfolio companies of either VC funds or private equity funds that take minority positions or non-control positions. Because my understanding, and Nick or Joe, feel free to talk about this, is that you know there's going to be lots of exemptions for funds and the analysis is going to be done. But certain individuals at funds are going to find that they may not be exempt vis-a-vis -vis their portfolio companies. And especially when they have non-control positions, and that's going to require, you know, counsel for, in my case, frequently the portfolio company coordinating with counsel for the funds to make sure that the proper reports are made and everyone's comfortable with how things are being done. Because there is a level of judgment that goes in there and is going to require a lot of coordination. Yeah, I think in a lot of the, let's call them gray areas or sort of ambiguous areas where where there are two reasonable or good faith views, we do emphasize consistency. And so to your point, it will be incumbent on, and by the way, it's not just that the portfolio company has, has counsel A and the sponsor has counsel B. I mean, even within a private equity world, they may have a separate counsel for their real estate investment funds they do for their credit funds, they do for their private equity funds. So again, even across those different groups of counsel, coordination will be key. So it, it is good to have uh, sort of house position on, on one of these questions, if you will, and then kind of socialize that 
with your other constituents. I, we're all um, figuring this out together as we go in the spirit of cooperation. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with all that. Uh, I, I'm, I think we're completely aligned and, you know, potentially dovetailing into some of our other questions. I think it's fair to say that um, acclimating to the CTA is a bit of a burden for law firms. Um, you know, internally, it requires us to think about our engagement letters, the scope of our engagement. Um, it, we, we've touched on the fact that the CTA is a today compliance issue, but it's also a continuing and go forward compliance issue, which raises unique issues for a law firm, um, you know, who may not do every piece of work for a client and may not have insight into changes of address, changes of beneficial ownership, restructurings. Um, so it, I think the CTA, while it, we understand and appreciate the challenges it presents for our clients, uh, it also presents a number of challenges for us internally and in, in for how we can help our clients and how we can be consistent across the board. Um, so I, I think there is plenty of burden there, though uh, it's always good to have an opportunity to connect with our clients on, on something new and, and to learn more about their business, which, you know, this certainly has provided an opportunity, at least for me, on that front. Yeah, I think one, one thing that um, I'm just anticipating, right, for, for a lot of our clients is, I don't know what this is, can you just do it for us, right? And um, you know, where we can assist sort of with the analysis and, and, and sort of, um, you know, walk them through sort of, you know, this is what the rule says with respect to beneficial owners and, and um, company applicants. You know, I, I think we're going to, uh, law firms are going to um, be hesitant um, to actually, you know, fill it out for them and press the button. I mean, frankly, I don't even know if they can, uh, particularly where there are sort of, you know, uh, potential uh, penalties with non-compliance. So Eugene, we have a question. I don't know if we want to stop and, and take the question from the audience. Sure. So um, so the question is, any word on the FinCEN identifier number and how to get one? I haven't seen much about it. Um, yeah, I mean, so so for folks that that don't know what the FinCEN identifier is, I, I didn't touch on it. Just just just, um, but it, it's it's basically sort of um, sort of fast pass, I guess. I don't know how how best to describe it, but you you apply for a FinCEN identifier. Um, it was a unique number. Each individual can can get a unique number that can then, you know, instead of reporting every time there's an entity that um, instead of reporting all that information again. Uh, you report your FinCEN identifier. And then when you make updates, you make updates to that master file, I suppose. And then it kind of, you know, it, it'll update sort of everything else along with it. You know, I haven't heard much about, I don't know, Dan, if, if you have. Uh, your, I, I actually checked the FinCEN website right before we all jumped on here to, to see if there had been any updates. And as of right now, the form that's going to be required to be filed has not been promulgated yet. The um, the API has not been opened up yet. Um, the FinCEN identifier process has not been opened up yet. Um, and I think the website notes that it will all be available on January 1st of 2024. Um, the other thing I will note is that there's a lot of intermediaries in the market. We're lawyers. We work with CT Corp, CSC, you know, CARTA, other third-party intermediaries that are very interested in getting into this business and facilitating and helping their clients. 
Um, I've seen some request letters that have gone from some of these asking for early access or API specifications so that they can start building out, you know, platforms. And uh, I don't believe that that information has been made available to them, to my knowledge. It's a good reason why they push back the 30-day deadline to 90 days, because if we form an entity on January 1st, we, we have to do all this sort of... Uh, sort of foundational groundwork before we can even make a filing at this point. But it's good to have one. I think a lot of us, at least at this firm, will be applying for them because then you can avoid having to send your passport or driver's license scan and home address around just quite as often as you might otherwise. Uh, that, that's, that You actually raised a question, Nick, which is, um, I think we, we've, we've sort of talked about um, this company applicant sort of concept, right? Which um, you know, for just to, to recall everyone's memory here, basically, if you form an entity or register a new entity, um, that enti that reporting company is going to have, if they are one, they're going to have to report up to two company applicants. The first one is pretty easy to figure out. It's, the, you know, it's the person that makes the filing uh, and whether that's, um, you know, a paralegal or an attorney in a firm or it's a um, it's a service provider. Right. Um, the, the the second one as to who directs that filing, um, that one's a little bit more ambiguous, I would say. And you know, I know a lot of attorneys are sort of hesitant to to file information when they don't need to. Uh, and I think the question is sort of how do how do folks um, think? How do you, how, you know how are folks interpreting that? And and whether you think firms can avoid being that second you know company applicant. I don't know if anyone had any thoughts on that. Happy to volunteer that I was on a panel uh, listening a couple of weeks back of sort of law firm GC types talking about this exact question. And it seemed like there was a lot of different, well, there's not that many different ways you could take the, take the question, but, but a lot of firms fell into the two camps, right? Some people are saying that they don't want their attorneys and paralegals to be a company applicant. Others are saying that, that is how they read the regulation and, and do intend to make their attorneys and paralegals company applicants. Um, it's hard for me to say that either of you is unreasonable. I, I would also note that the Q&A on FinCEN's website with respect to the CTA expressly says that an accountant or a lawyer may be a company applicant if they're primarily responsible for directing or controlling the filing. So so the, the Q&A and also in the FinCEN Small Business Reporting Compliance Guide expressly contemplates that lawyers can, and under certain circumstances that I think are... Um, pretty reasonable for those of us who practice in the corporate area, considered they can be considered secondarily company applicants. No, I think it's it's a it's a good thing to be talking about because it's certainly a risk area. It's it's certainly something that the lawyers need to be thinking about at the outset before the CTA takes effect. I, I like you, Nick. I've I've heard sort of both positions. I, the way that I think about it is. Um, Given the one is that the regulation itself and the implementing rule does not say explicitly that attorneys involved in the filing are in fact company applicants. It's not that black and white. Um, I think that the FAQs provide a reason to draw the inference that it's possible for a lawyer or an accountant that's involved in the process to be a company applicant. Um, but at the same time, you know, it does not contemplate every single set of circumstances or how that is structured. So I, I think at this point, 
Um, I would hesitate to say that every attorney that is involved in the process is necessarily a company applicant, but being considered a company applicant is certainly a risk. And I think there's a hope that, um, you know, that there is additional guidance from FinCEN as the process moves forward to better understand what is meant uh, it, both in the regulation and in the guidance for what's going to constitute that indirect filer um, so that everyone has the benefit of additional clarity as we as we march forward. Yeah, for those firms that do decide that there are paralegals and attorneys in certain circumstances will be company applicants, it raises a whole different question about getting them FinCEN identifiers and managing and safeguarding their information, making sure that those folks understand what it means to be put in as a company applicant, which as I understand it, is the company applicant forever, for 50 years from now, that will still be the company applicant. So um, we have a lot of questions from folks who, who are asking, what does it mean to be put in as a company applicant? Am I liable? And I think that's the challenging question to answer, but it is one that every organization needs to have an answer to, uh, just to even respond to their own, own people's concerns. Dan, how do you guys... Sorry, Dan. No, I was also going to pick up on something sort of tangential to that, but talking about liability, I, I have seen comment letters out there asking for clarification on what the final form will look like, because as of right now, I think that there was an early rule that said that, you know, anyone doing the reporting, so hypothetically intermediaries, lawyers, whoever's actually filing the report needs to certify that the reporter application is true, correct, and complete. Um, not to the knowledge of the the person hitting the button, but just a flat rep. Um, I think that there's hopes within the market that will provide clarification or that the final form will have some sort of wiggle room to to limit the potential scope of in you know scope of liability for those actually pushing the button. potentially a good segue into third parties and other folks who might help with the filing here, e.g. Yeah. No, I, I think I mean we've we 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 at the firm have seen you know a lot of a lot of um, vendors out there uh, playing to assist with this process. Um, you know I don't know how you guys anticipate potentially using these vendors to to work uh, with the firm and and, and helping compliance. Um, any thoughts? You're I'm happy to to start. Yeah, no, no, well, yeah, I, I mean, I think that there are, just to give the the folks that have joined us today some background, there are vendors like, uh, you know, folks like CT or Carta, um, other, other entities that have corporate governance offerings that are actively developing and, and, and are making plans to assist companies with both, you know, tracking the, the types of information that they would potentially need in order to make a CTA filing, and then also to help them manage and submit CTA filings. And I think the most recent um, updates from FinCEN, you know, show an acknowledgement that they anticipate that third parties like uh, these vendors are going to assist with, uh, ultimately are going to assist with filing the report. So I, I certainly think there's potential for a role there. Um, and I think it's something like many other corporate governance offerings that we're going to see be um, be pretty prevalent, um, potentially with assistance or advice from law firms on you know the legal aspects of of the filing situation. That's at least how I view it. And I'm also going to expand on that and say that some of these third party providers are actually hoping that they can assist in the process of applying for FinCEN identifiers as an additional add-on. And then hypothetically speaking, if you have an individual who gets a FinCEN identifier 
and that FinCEN identifier is affiliated with that individual with this third-party provider, it will make the whole process easier on a going forward basis because they have the technological capability to do this. I anticipate that when all this is made available on January 1st, there are going to be some coders working ferociously to, to get this stuff up and running and interoperable with the API. I think these providers have a huge role to play because there's, um, as we've touched on, you know, law firms, there might be multiple law firms on the scene at a given client, firm relationships come and go, but these sort of institutional touch points at a CT Corp or CSC do tend to last for a long time. And there's a great value, I think, in centralizing uh, at least management of which entities have made a filing and what was filed. Um, and that goes to the point about change management and the importance of uh, to your point, Joe, keep, you know, making update filings and having somebody tell the client that they have to make an update filing. And that kind of, um, it is more commoditized and it is large scale and it definitely benefits from technology and all those things are things that I think lawyers not very good at, at least relative to, uh, you know, Walter's Queller or, or other. So I, I think they have a huge role to play and, and uh, we'll, we'll have to see what that offering looks like. And I'm just going to pick up on that and say that my sense of how this will likely play out is that what a lot of what we're talking about right now is determining a custom and practice across industries and, and, and sort of standardizing the customs and practice and the interpretations, which are still sort of up in the air and open to discussion. I think over the course of time, that will settle down. And that's when you'll really see the, you know, the, the CSCs and the CTs and the Carters of the world come in and just sort of have a standardized process, have FAQs with what the customs and the interpretations are of the regs, et cetera. And it would just become sort of a run-of-the-mill thing, like us doing blue sky filings for those who who work in private capital markets. Question, I guess, you know, how do you guys think firms are gonna price this work? At least initially, and then maybe you know going forward, it's very difficult to to you know from my perspective, just because we just don't know what we don't know, um, and and you know there's there's so many open questions, and I mean, we don't even know what the form is going to look like, right? Um, but like Dan had mentioned earlier, you know this is you know clients aren't going to love paying for um, us to learn on that, um, so I'm just curious as to people's thoughts. I have a sense it's going to be hourly at first. Um, and I also, I'm going to go back to blue sky filings and say that my hope is that one year from now, we can all talk to each other and say that, you know, it's as run of the mill as a blue sky filing and the analysis there. Um, you know, th there's legal work to be done there. There's thoughtful process that needs to be followed, but it's not really something that's, you know, it's it's not a huge pressure point in any financing I've ever worked on. Yeah, I'd, I'd rather be providing, you know, on an hourly basis, the advice about who should file and and what should be on the filing. And then the mechanics of making that filing, it seems to me, are ripe for commoditization and, uh, and other service providers. So that would be the ideal. I don't know that we have an answer to how we would price that second piece, but I, I hope that we don't really have to figure that out candidly. Right. Totally agree. I, I think the legal advice with respect to the, you know, CTA obligations and, and the questions related to that, I envision being something of a continued hourly 
um, sort of an hourly base. But in terms of the other services or how they're packaged, I think you know it's hard to say with a firm you know like ours where we do have different fee arrangements for different services. So that and there is variability even within the firm and the corporate practice. So uh, it, it's hard to say that there will be a standard. But I I think that the legal advice associated with analyzing the, the issues or, you know, if you're like Nick or I and you're an enforcement attorney and there's an investigation down the road, I anticipate that being treated like the the, the base of our regulatory or litigation focused work. As Martha has put in the chat, a link to a, uh, a service provider here, which I'm confident will undercut all of us on price. And this is so there's there, somebody's already stepping into this potential vacuum in the market uh, in case anybody's interested. Absolutely. Thanks, Martha. Yeah, question question to, to to Nick and Joe on that point about about you know enforcement. I, I you know, what are you guys thoughts on like actually um, FinCEN, you know, enforcing this and and you know, um, who they're going to go after and 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 all that. My, my view is it, it's a law. There are civil and criminal penalties. You know, there obviously hasn't been any enforcement yet. I think I've seen some public comments that you know this is not intended uh, at the outset to be a gotcha exercise or you know a, a, a real enforcement tool. It's meant to assist lawmakers and law enforcement in, in obtaining information that they need to do their jobs. Otherwise, um, you know, I, so I think it's a very much a wait and see approach. Though, you know, if there are willful and, and knowing violations of this law, like any other law, I'd anticipate that there will eventually be enforcement and. Um, you know, it, it'll be FinCEN and Treasury that that take the lead on that, and um, you know, there, there will be there will be a, an area of enforcement at some point, I would imagine. Nick, do you have any thoughts on that? No, totally agree. I, I think it's a huge question mark. And what what an interesting question I had received, which I didn't have a great answer to, was um, it, will there ever be a mechanism that encourages you know non government third parties in the marketplace to report this information, or even requires them to report it if a bank finds out that one of its customers is behind on its ownership reporting information or reported inaccurate information, are they going to eventually have an obligation to tell FinCEN that? So, I mean, that that would be an interesting and I would I would imagine much more fruitful enforcement step um, than than leaving it to FinCEN to just blindly figure out who who's not in compliance. I would imagine these are the type of violations that are um, that are tacked on to other violations. Um, that law enforcement is, is more readily able to detect. Because I think it's challenging to say, um, you should have filed but didn't. What's the basis for your exemption? There may be a very good basis that, that FinCEN is not aware of. And equally, you put these six people on the application, but it should have been these eight people. Uh, I think, again, that's very challenging for a, a regulator to independently arrive at. So question, question. I think your point about financial institutions is a great one. Um, you know, tying back to some of the comments I had earlier about the impact this will have on financial institution diligence. I, I could see a world where in the future, um, this is, you know, the CTA is connected to those dil diligence requirements. And, you know, if a financial institution is doing diligence and they receive information that is markedly different than information that's available on the FinCEN website, I, I could foresee a world where there would be some obligation to either report that or at least take note of it um, as part of the financial institution's own diligence processes. And obviously, this is just speculation, uh, but that's a world where those two regimes link up um, and, and then there are there are actors sort of deputized to be looking for inaccurate information on FinCEN's behalf. 
Thanks. Yeah. Uh, just a couple of questions here. We have a couple more minutes, but um, really want to talk a little bit about um, sort of internal policies, right? You know, what firms may or may not, you know, uh, think about doing with respect to engagement letters. And then, you know, to the extent they're assisting with, um, you know, collecting this information for, for on behalf of a reporting company, um, it seems to me that that's going to implicate sort of security protocols and making sure that that particular information is even more secure, um, perhaps than, than, you know, some of the others that, that firms collect. I don't know if folks have thoughts on that. Well, we're already, oh, yeah, no, sorry, Dan, go ahead. Go ahead, Nick. I was going to say, we're, you know, we're already coming into possession of, of not as much, but certainly driver's licenses and sensitive personal information. And I think we, I, if I'm not mistaken, already have an ethical obligation to maintain appropriate, um, you know, electronic safeguards for that information. What I'm, what I'm most concerned about is communicating to, to our clients their responsibility and not our responsibility for the update filings. That to me is the number one risk area. If you do just one thing to your engagement letters and, and client conversations, it's got to be that. Like we we can't, regardless of whether we formed a company or filed the initial application or the initial um, BOI form, it's it's effectively impossible for a law firm to monitor a client's um, ongoing obligations to update that information. I agree entirely. Um, it's our primary concern is the updating. And, you know, if you look at the FAQs, or if you look at the the compliance guide, I mean, some of the examples they give is the chief executive officer changing their address. I, I don't know that they would ever think to reach out to me because there has to be a 30-day uh, update on the filing. So, so those are areas of sort of general compliance concern. Yeah. It, it seems kind of silly to me that, you know, the 30-day thing, but... Um... Uh, that's what the rule says. So that's what we have to comply with. Um, all right. Well, great. Well, thank you guys so much. I, you know, it's been, I, I think, a, a really great conversation. Um, obviously, a lot to sort of still parse out here. Um, hope we get uh, more guidance from FinCEN in the next, what, two and a half weeks. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I, I, like we said, there, there's 90 days, technically, if you, you know, you form an entity. To, to complete this information. So um, there is some time, uh, but in theory, everything should be launched on January 1st and you know we'll figure it out from there. Well, thank you guys all for uh, participating and uh, we appreciate it. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having us. I guess.